This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning weekly hour of chat about all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy. We've got Kemp pushing the buttons and sitting beside me are at least two of our three lovely regulars, Miss Medic, our trusty GP, and Lolly Doc, our emergency room physician. Where's Dr Malice, I hear you ask? Well, we're not exactly sure. He's off doing something work-related, but who knows what child psychiatrists get up to for work on a sunny Melbourne Sunday morning. I think he might have said something about a conference, but I have this recurring visual that keeps popping up in my head of Dr Malice crouching down in a corner at Melbourne Museum with a clipboard in hand, taking furious notes about all the parent-child interactions while secretly tagging the ankles of any kids he can get close enough to without being seen. Creepy or genius? You be the judge. But fear not. In the empty chair that Dr Malice has left this morning, we've placed one of Melbourne's very own ambulance paramedics to bring you the inside scoop on what our ambos really get up to. What comes to mind when you think of an ambulance? Does it bring up a memory of being stuck driving in the right-hand lane with lights and sirens behind you, feeling panicky but not knowing quite what to do? Perhaps you've just seen one too many ambulances parked in the no-standing zone outside your favourite cafe. Or maybe you've actually had to call an ambulance in the middle of a crisis and rely on paramedics to get you through. Well, have you ever wondered what it's actually like to be the one in uniform in those situations? How do they cope with it all? And what are their secrets for staying calm amidst the panic? We're going to find out today with our extra special guest, Ellie. And how are you finding the whole election build-up, budget, frenzy, debate-watching madness this week? We're already a bit exhausted by it all, to be honest, but there's one thing we do want to pick up on on today's show, and that's the Medicare freeze that was announced. Did you hear about it? Do you know what it is or what it'll mean for you? Apparently it's going until 2020, so we figured we'd better find out some more. Miss Medic's going to tell us all about it today with a particular focus on what it means for us when we visit the GP. And you're right, I haven't mentioned Lolly Doc yet. What's he in the studio for today? Well, he's gone a bit quiet on the fact that he's officially the first radiotherapy member to be named in the Panama Papers so far. So I think that's a no-go zone. But he does have a pile of papers in front of him on the desk, so your guess is as good as mine. Stay tuned, hey? <laughs> so grab a cup of coffee, settle in as we bring you all this, plus some laughs, some ketchup and more as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Good morning, good morning, team. How are we all? Lolly Duck, great to see you. Panama. <laughs> Panama did sounds I like... you? You did. Panama sounds like one of these places where it'd be kind of sexier than it actually is, <laughs> I think. Like if you went to Panama and, I don't know, it's not Monaco, is it? It's not Monaco. But, uh, it's got its own hat. It's got its own canal. Yeah. Yeah. Good work, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Maddie, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Dr. Autonomy? Oh, I'm a bit under the weather, actually. I think I've got the cold that all of you had last month. Is that uh, possible? It could be. There's yeah. lots of colds and virus, colds and flus going around. And a little reminder, the flu vaccine is well and truly out. So if you haven't gone and got one, please do so. There was a great segment about the flu vax um, a few weeks back on radiotherapy, actually, and I listened to it and thought, I've got to go and 
get that and never got around to it. So Book thanks in. for the reminder. There was a bit of a shortage when they initially came out, but I think that most general practices and pharmacies would be well and truly stopped with the quadrivalent, meaning it covers the four common strains of flu. So go and get one. It's meant to be a yourself. bad year, isn't it? Well, last year was a bad year and the Northern Hemisphere has had a bad year, so uh, predictions are that it could well be. But we are, last year the flu vaccine covered three of the common flu viruses that were around and this year we've gone the extra, st- and it was a bad year, so including seeing cases of flu in people that had the flu vaccine. So this year there's the quadrivalent covering the four common types so of flu. it's 25% better this year. <laughs> mm. Have you had yours, Lollydog? I have. I have had mine. Do you get it at work? I do. Yeah. It's like a production line. We have 8,000 employees at our hospital wow. and it's a big production line and we get a chupa chup <laughs> and a get, sticker and a sticker yeah yeah we have to pick which sticker we got i got the green vomiting one <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure what it means but there's a green vomiting sticker are you the only one that got that sticker? pretty much yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah so lolly you don't want to talk about panama i don't want to talk about panama and i don't want to talk about penises to this, this week just for, a change. just for a change i did actually see a story which we're not going to talk about today about i think stem cells being used to create sperm and I was certain that you were going to bring that in to talk about I saw that. Did you? I did. Where did the restraint restraint. come from? I know, I know. Well, you know, I'm into restraints these days. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's going to be one of those shows. Um, (laughs) What have you got? I do want to talk about something a little bit serious. It's kind of, it's a weird topic, but um, we do spend a bit of time bagging pharmaceutical companies. Um, both on this show and in public, and they're they're kind of a they're not public enemy number one, but they're certainly public enemy number two or three, I mm-hmm. think. And um, we just had an announcement this week from Pfizer, who are the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, and they announced that they would not be supplying uh, U.S. states with drugs which are used in lethal injections. So for prison inmates who have got a uh, death sentence that have been handed down to them and uh, death by injection, they're no longer going to be providing medications that are used in those executions. So that was kind of an interesting thing. They were the last pharmaceutical company. So there's been a bit of a public outcry about um, the death sentence in the States over the last three to five years. And there's about 25 pharmaceutical companies that are involved in providing those medications to the states. Tennessee is one of them. And 24 of those 25 have um, put a moratorium on uh, delivering those medications to those particular US states. And um, Pfizer was the last one, and they were a big one. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because I I didn't see any of the news about the other 24 pharmaceutical companies that have said, no, we're not going to supply these drugs. And yet there's this big story about... About Pfizer, which makes you think, oh, maybe Pfizer's not so bad. You know, they're refusing to provide drugs. But as you just said, they're the last ones yep. to come on board. Last and probably very, Reluctant. very Johnny come lately as well. Yeah, like they're very, very late to the party. Um, it's a there is a kind of a dark side to this story, which is that. Um, because the pharmaceutical companies are not providing legal opportunities for, if legal being a kind of inverted commas kind of word, but they're not providing a normal uh, flow of these medications to the states. The states are trying to find alternative ways to execute their prisoners. Mm. So there's a bit of a kind of, there's been a couple of botched 
uh, executions. And as you know, just like right? yeah, just like you know, in the movies, how you have these witnesses that sit in the witness box, you know, in the witness room, in the one-way glass, and they can watch their. Um, a, you know, someone who's been convicted of a crime be executed. Um, they've watched uh, someone take an hour and a half to to die as they stuffed up their their mm, medication. Goodness. So there is a bit of a problem in not providing. Uh, a kind of a legal way of doing things. It's fascinating from an ethical point of view, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it could be seen as a great ethical stance to sort of put out to the world that they don't want to be involved in capital punishment and they disagree with it and they don't want their brand and their products to be associated with that. You could see that as a, you know, a wonderful moral, um, you know, stance to take and, and a real sort of um, example to set. But I guess if in medicine, as in um, all aspects of medicine, our aim is to prevent harm and to minimise harm, you could make the argument that it's less harmful to use, you know, legal effective drugs um, if the capital punishment is going to happen anyway mm. than to force them to access drugs elsewhere. Was it, I, had an int- I had a similar kind of thought when I was reading this article. I thought, you know, I, my personal stance, and I say this, it is my personal opinion, but I, I think that um, many of the illicit drugs that are available in the community should be at least made legal or at least in the sense provided in a harm minimisation. I believe in harm minimisation. And I wondered whether my my feelings extended to this death sentencing because it's, it's it's a very similar kind of mm. argument i thought yeah so it doesn't because it, it the state hasn't changed its view on whether or not these the prisoners will be executed but now they'll be executed in ways that could be inhumane which is a real that's something to think about as well um you know people suffering and unduly and so what's what's your goal? Is your goal to try to stop capital punishment from happening and that's not occurring? Or is your goal just to not be associated with it and not really care about the harm that occurs, which is a totally different end point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It makes me think of doctors' rights to conscientiously object to things. So the, the example that comes to mind is abortion or um, perhaps even prescribing contraception? Would that be something that any doctors Or object? even more recently the young little girl uh, little refugee girl in uh, in Brisbane, the Brisbane Hospital yep. that um, the doctors and nurses refused to send back to um, uh, detention. Great example. And so I guess as a doctor you do have the right to conscientiously object but my understanding is that if you refuse to provide a service, so for example if you refuse to you know, be associated with an abortion, you need to refer to another doctor who is willing to provide that service and therefore you're not creating additional harm simply because you don't want to be associated with something. Is that right, Miss Medic? That is correct, yeah. Absolutely. So something seems a bit amiss with this Pfizer stance, doesn't it? It it seems somehow more about them and them not wanting to be associated and wanting to get a bit of positive um, media attention about what they're doing or not doing, Um, but actually the outcome and, and in terms of harm, you could argue things are actually worse now. Absolutely. And I guess that's the thing. It's what what was the motive? And being that they were the last to come to the party, was it just that they couldn't, didn't want... It's one of those really um, uncomfortable situations where I'm sure the drug companies would be quite happy for this just to be somebody else's name 
tagged to it and mm-hmm. not uh, and not have them specifically. So I, I imagine possibly what will happen is that there'll be some other drug company that will take this opportunity. <laughs> a niche market, the yeah. niche market. Yeah. yeah, possibly. I don't know. How does a drug company actually prevent people using their drugs for a certain purpose? That's what stumped me when I first heard about this story. So, I mean... You know, you produce a drug and you sell it and isn't that sort of where your control ends and people use it in whatever way they choose? How are they actually logistically going to stop this from happening? The perfect example in Australia is is the use of Oxynorm. So that's a, that's a pain medication which is a morphine-based pain medication. We know that Australia has a huge problem. We're catching up to America. America leads the world in Oxynorm abuse, but we're catching up. And... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Exactly right. So, so Oxynorm gets sold to a pharmacy um, by the drug company, and um, that's where their purview ends, really. So, you can, as a doctor, you write a prescription for uh, a pain medication for a patient who's got a painful condition, and then there's a huge black market uh, for Oxynorm. So, and that's called diversion, in fact. So, they, they have, they have, we have uh, relatives uh, taking their mums or dads or brothers sister's oxynorm and selling it on the black market for 30 bucks a pill and wow. making a lot of money. So it's a, it's a similar situation in the States with these medications. So now uh, places like Tennessee are looking to hospitals that are willing to, you know, enter a kind of purchase agreement for their, you know, um, death penalty drugs uh, for a bit of cash. Um, so there's, it's created a whole new market, really. Mm. I know there has been discussion in the past about um, medical professionals' engagement in uh, capital punishment and um, also things like detention. So sometimes medical professionals are called on to ensure that, you know, this sort of process is done properly or that maybe uh, even torture techniques and um, techniques that are used in, in war to access information from people, you know, don't go too far. And there's been discussion about the medical professional's role. So, you know, are they implicit in creating this harm by being part of it or are they actually minimising the harm by being there and making sure that things don't go too far? And it's it's a really fine line and in some ways I guess the, the makers of these pharmaceuticals are, are caught in the same position, aren't they? <laughs> wow. What's that expression uh, mean? <laughs> that, that expression is... Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. Is what that mm. expression? That was that was a blank, vacant stare for the <laughs> listeners, which is my uh, answer of oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that uh, grey comes in lots of shades, doesn't it? And mm. it's hard to know when you when you talk about things like harm minimisation. It's hard to know how much harm is minimising and how much you know how, how far is okay. Mm. Um, and. I just wonder who sets those standards. Mm. Um, I suspect it's probably society, really, um, by definition, because they're the ones that vote and they're the ones that, uh, I guess, by proxy create legislation. But it's it's an interesting, interesting, difficult area, Mm. I think. Mm Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what happens, I guess. You know, we could hope that maybe legislation would change, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the outcome, does it? There is no state that has capital punishment at the, mo- at the moment that has a strong mandate to change that mm. view. Um, and there's a whole lot of different pressures in the states than there are in Australia. Their prisons are absolutely bursting at the moment. And... Um, 
you know, death row is a is bursting with mm. inmates waiting for the death penalty. So there's this kind of it's this sick kind of pressure to to kill people. It's mm. bizarre, it um, bizarre, isn't it? But it's it's real and it's there. Um, they're bringing back the electric chair because they don't have access to medication. So it's nuts. Yeah. Well, I think it's nuts anyway. Yeah, mm. absolutely. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. It's time to introduce our extra special guest. We've got Ellie in the studio and she is one of Melbourne's own paramedics because we thought it was time to hear the inside scoop on what it's actually like to be a paramedic. Um, So Ellie, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm not sure how extra special I am. Good morning. (laughs) We think you're very extra special. Cheers. And thank you for joining us on a sunny Sunday morning. So Ellie, I might just start off with the basics about what led you to become a paramedic and how long have you been one? Uh, look, for me, uh, it's, oh, I think it's about eight, eight and a half years, um, which is a few now. Time flies. Mm. Um, for me, it wasn't a very linear path. Um, I did an arts degree, but doesn't everyone? Um, <laughs> yeah, and, all the cool people. Yeah, and I didn't actually finish it, to be fair. Um, but I wanted to be a writer, and huh. um, I really enjoyed writing, um, sort of where my heart was when I was a teenager in, in my um, younger 20s, but then I realised uh, that might not be a entirely realistic and stable <laughs> career path, and uh, thought about what else I might like to do, and here I am, yeah. Wow, interesting story that led you in there. And can I ask firstly about the training? I don't know if it's changed much over the last eight years, but, you know, what do you have to actually do to become a paramedic these days? So it's a three-year bachelor degree um, now, and when I was studying, uh, there was one university that offered it, and now there are several. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really grown. Um, So it's a three-year university degree, and then you go out on road and you have a period of supervision. Uh, which um, is, oh gosh, I think it's under a year now for the grads, mm-hmm. um, which is, um, yeah, quite brief. Um, mm-hmm. But they work with a superior, with a clinical instructor to help them and guide them. Uh, and then they, um, yeah, spread their wings. <laughs> and that's been a big change, hasn't it, in, in the paramedic uh, field? Because it used to be very much an apprenticeship model, didn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. And um, when it was, look, I think I think one of the obvious changes is when it was that, that model, that sort of um, on the job, training, uh, there, there were people of different vintages that came through. Um, and that's still the case in, univer- in the university system, um, but we do have more um, high school leavers that go straight through uni and then come into the job. What do you mean by an apprenticeship model? Um, so the, the classic apprenticeship model is you learn on the job. So you follow a more experienced colleague and, you know, I, I guess the trades are a good example of that. I mean, I know there's obviously trade school and trade um, diplomas and degrees as well, but most of the trades, uh, they learn their skills on the job. And similarly for paramedics, you know, when I started as a doctor, it was all, there was no uni degree for, for paramedics. It was learning on the job. Yeah. Um, and it sounded like that was quite a tough, a tough mm. way to learn, mm. really. Um, Ellie, you said that um, the average life expectancy of a paramedic is almost like five, oh. five years, or it's not very life long. Life expectancy in the job. In the job, oh, yeah. correct. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are, um, but certainly 
Certainly um, some people, particularly we have students that come out and observe us um, from uni, um, so they do placements with Ambulance Victoria. And, you know, as part of the, the conversation, they're getting to know you, oh, how long you've been in the job? And um, it, it appears that I'm a bit ancient at eight and a half years. Right. So, um, so what, what do you think the challenges are in, in your work that, that lead to that kind of shorter life expectancy? Um, look, I, I, think, the job. I think there are a couple of different things. Um, I certainly, certainly the hours um, can be gruelling. Um, our 14-hour night shifts are a little bit rough. <sighs> um, yeah, a little bit rough. They're certainly, certainly, um, I, uh, not to say that I'm elderly, but uh, when I started in the job, I found I'd, um, it was a lot easier for me to bounce back from a night shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and as time has gone on, um, it takes me longer to recover. Um, so certainly that's a challenge. The hours are a challenge. Um, for Look, the nature of the work is difficult too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm sure... Um, you know, after, after years, you know, that builds up and sees, see, and um, we see a lot of people kind of struggling with that after time. Mm. It's quite a physical job, isn't it? I think that's something oh, that people don't always appreciate. Well, in its moments it is, um, but often it's not. It's a lot of sitting, whether you're sitting in a... Um, whether you're sitting in a home, a radio studio, or a radio studio, whether you're sitting in a truck or you're sitting at hospital, there is a lot of sitting involved. Um, when it's physical, it's physical. Um, so in those situations, you know, like for example, a cardiac arrest where you are down on the ground and you're moving and you, um, and and you're certainly challenged. Um, in various different spaces. When you're getting a 140 kilo patient down from a second. Story oh, apartment. I've got to say, it's not my favourite. Mm. Not my favourite thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so look, it um, when it yeah the the best best way I can answer that is by saying um, when it is physical, it's physical, but often it's not. So Ellie, I think um, when people think about paramedics and the work they do, I think everyone imagines that the nature of the work must be incredibly challenging. I think Mm. that's probably what comes to mind for a lot of people and wondering how you cope with that, which I definitely want to speak about. But I wonder if the stuff about the shift work and the hours is less known about um, and and not sort of what comes to mind for people when they think about what's challenging in the job. Can you tell us a bit, because my understanding is that you don't get really a choice about the hours you work. It's a set sort of roster most of the time. And can you give us a sense of what that roster would look like? Like what would your week be in terms of hours? And yeah, look, so so the traditional roster, um, the traditional, traditional model we're coming um, from is two days and two nights. Um, so that was two 10-hour uh, day shifts and two 14-hour nights. Um, there's certainly been a move away from that um, just to try and combat some of these issues. For example, the roster I work, which I feel very blessed to have, um, I'm at a branch where we do two days and then we do one afternoon shift, so that's 12 hours and then only one night. Um, afternoon shift and then hearing that that's 12 hours yeah. isn't what I imagine when you're saying no, afternoon yes. shift. Uh, and, and then we have, so we always finish on a night and then we have our recovery period. Um, of a few days and then we're back at it. Right. It's interesting that you say that that's that new model because I was um, I watched the Insight program on sleep this week and uh, I did a little bit of extra reading about um, 
about shift workers and how the fatigue accumulates. And they, some of the research has suggested that that's moving, um, that having two days and then an evening, afternoon and then a night helps with our natural circadian rhythms so that it progressively moves to a delayed onset of sleep by having that afternoon prior to doing mm. the night shift. So uh, there is some science that backs that up as being a better model for mm. our shift workers. I saw the Insight program too and one of the things that really struck me was I think the figure was once you've been awake for between 16 and 19 hours straight, your functioning um, replicates that of someone with a blood alcohol of 0.05. That's yeah. right, yeah. And so you're saying every week a 14-hour night shift is standard. Yes, yeah. And so that's the hours that you're actually at work. So I imagine it's pretty common for you to be awake for sometimes 16 hours at a, at a time. Oh, absolutely, 100%, yeah. So how do you cope with it? How do you deal with the fatigue? Um, personally, I'm extraordinarily lucky uh, because I can sleep like a bear in winter. <laughs> and so I, I'm very blessed and I, I fit very well with the job in that sense. Mm. Um, yeah, give me something soft and I'll sleep on it, basically. Um, it doesn't matter what time it mm-hmm. is. So I'm quite I'm quite fortunate because um, I can really prepare for my night shifts by sleeping through the day. Ah, in preparation. Um, yeah, yep. and so that's that's how I survive. But for a lot of people, that's not possible, um, and I certainly certainly feel for them. Yeah. One of the ways I prepare for shift work is to, you know, it's 0.05, so I figure you may as well just get to 0.05 <laughs> straight away and then kind of get into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, nice. The medical board are just on line one, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I yeah, need to take a break right now. <laughs> um, Ellie, what about the nature of the work? Can you tell us what the most common jobs that you see are and how you cope with some of those really pointy end of jobs? Um, Look, interestingly, uh, when you ask about what's difficult and the frustration of the work, um, I think many of my colleagues would actually say the same thing and the answer is probably surprising. Um, There's a great deal of frustration attending people that don't need ambulance support um, that takes up a lot of our time. Um, We're often often attending people for um, sort of, you know, minor minor conditions that aren't of an acute nature. Um, and Can that- you tell us what some of them might be? Because I suspect people out there often worry about, is this a sure. scenario where I can call an ambulance? And sure. sometimes it's the people who really do need to be calling that think, oh God, is this one of those scenarios? So what do you mean when you say there's jobs that don't really require an ambulance? What sort of jobs are they? Yeah, um, look, what you just said really rings true because often, you know, you'll go to somebody, um, particularly of an older generation, um, who will call an ambulance and who desperately needs our support, but and they're intensely apologetic. <laughs> you know, it's a sort of, I don't want to waste your time and thanks for coming, and they're the people that need us. Um, the... We're, we're, we're attending, we attend, um, so that some of those things might be, you know, sort of your chronic conditions, um, like back pain that a, a person isn't sort of managing as per their plan, um, cold and flu, um, you know, maybe a, a, a sprained 
ankle, that kind of stuff. Right. Things that things that um, a lot of members of the public, certainly when I tell my friends and family about some of the things that I attend, um, they're, they're shocked. Mm. They're really shocked um, because, you know, they're, they're of the, the belief that, you know, ambulance stands for emergency. Um, but unfortunately, some members of the populace don't subscribe to that. And there is still probably a, a, a public stereotype that if you call an ambulance, you'll get seen in the emergency Absolutely. department quicker. Yep, and we're we're very quick to dispel that myth. Uh, <laughs> so often um, we'll we'll go to a let's just say we go to a patient who doesn't need our support, um, but who who might like to attend the emergency department. Um, for, for some further assessment but certainly doesn't require an emergency ambulance um, we might politely suggest to them that you know they have a family member in the home um, could that family member pop them down and that's when they say oh but if you know if we go in with you you know doesn't that change things and we explain to them that they'll be triaged the same as everybody else um, whether they come in with us or with their family member. And if they do go in with you and they're triaged and they have to wait for ages, does that mean you wait for ages as well until there's a spot for them? It depends. It depends on their personal circumstances. Um, if they're incredibly low acuity, um, it, it's not uncommon for a patient to get off our stretcher and be walked out to the waiting room where they will then wait um, in the wa- in the waiting room, as they would have yeah. um, if somebody had driven them in. Yeah. One of the changes for us in the emergency department uh, and the interface with Ambulance Victoria in the last year was that the government instituted a new uh, key performance indicator, which was to offload uh, ambulances within 40 minutes, I think it is, or 40 or 45 minutes, with the, and the, the benchmark is 90%. So there was a lot of pressure to prioritise um, getting ambulance crews back out into the community uh, so that response times were, were improved. And when you think about response times, you can't help thinking that if all these ambulances are being called out to jobs that don't really require an ambulance, what does that do to the response times for the people who really do need them? And, that, and that's our frustration. So I think it's hard to... Um, some, sometimes it can be, and I, th- I think we do pretty well, um, but it can be hard to keep a positive attitude when you come to work to do your job and to assist people that truly need your assistance um, and you find yourself going to these jobs. So what's the answer? How can you change that? Uh, Not sure. (laughs) Not sure. Look, I think community education is really important. There have been some great um, campaigns abroad, um, some sort of television campaigns, um, media campaigns about what is appropriate um, use of an ambulance. And look, I think that we're cle- we're clever people. I think you know if you if you if you look at look at your um, what you're going through and and you think well yeah you know this is you know I need an ambulance. Um, you need an ambulance, but yeah. Um, yeah, for the members of the community that um, that yeah don't don't quite get that. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the answer Miss is. Medic, do you have any thoughts on? I mean, if you're thinking about those people who have, I don't know, been home with gastro for three days and call yeah. an ambulance, you know, what are their other options? Well, there are there are other options. One is to, if it's within hours, call your GP clinic. Um, there are still avail- lots of GPs still do home visits. There are after hours locum medical services also, um, which. 
I have mixed feelings about it at the moment, which yeah, we're going to talk we about, that talk a, bit about a bit later. Um, but I do think that really important perhaps if you are one of those people that calls an ambulance and is informed by the ambulance crew that like that you didn't really need an ambulance perhaps go and see your gp and discuss through what was going on and what your options were for that specific scenario we'll we'll always refer on um so if we go out to a patient who doesn't um, require an ambulance or doesn't require emergency department support. Um, there are all sorts of different things, you know, that we refer patients onto. So it might be a locum service, you know, if that's um, necessary and appropriate for them. Um, visit with their GP in the morning, that kind of stuff. Um, so we always, yeah, we always give people those other options. Yeah, I, I do tend to think that there's a bit of a pattern in the people that uh, t- tend to be the repeat offenders in this, and that they, one of the things is that they're not well linked in. With a GP, yeah. and so that is crucial. We know people's health is so much better, and they're better, much more in control of what their symptoms are um, if they are linked in with a general practitioner. And I think that's that's our own responsibility to yeah. take that step towards positive healthcare um, by being well linked in with a GP. Um, look, I think that unfortunately the way that the Look, the way that the system works is that there are always going to be calls which are not required. There will always be cases of chest pain that go to hospital that are not myocardial infarctions, and that will always that has to be the case because if it's not, if that doesn't happen, it means we're missing we're missing cases of serious chest pain that could be heart attack in the community. So there needs to be an element of accepting that there'll be. Some cases. Some cases yeah. where it's like, well, you know, this has all turned out to be no significant pathology. That's okay. But I guess it's sort of t- part of it is training our patients about what the services are that are available and also a, taking a bit of responsibility. And we will come back to this when we talk about the Medicare freeze. So there's only a finite set of resources there's only so many ambulance crews on the road there's only so much money in the medicare pop we need to be responsible about what it's when we utilize the services yeah. and how we utilize them and if we're utilizing what that means for other and people what that means for other because this, these things you know can only go so far if you're calling an ambulance because you've you know sprained an ankle and you think that it'll get you through ed faster then there's you know a baby in respiratory distress, meaning difficulty breathing, that won't get the response time that's mm-hmm. adequate. And there, there are certainly um, certainly different layers to that. For example, you know, we're talking about the sprained ankle. Sprained ankle for a 22-year-old fella playing soccer is different for to yeah. a straight uh, sprained ankle for an elderly person who's yeah, you know home alone or um, mm. yeah yeah isolated um, or who's in terrible pain. Yeah. You know, so so they're always yeah they're always Ways, um, circumstances. circumstances yeah. What about Ambulance Victoria? I have heard, and you might not be able to talk about this, you might not know enough about it, Ellie, but I've heard that there have been some changes flagged about how they triage calls and how they send out um, ambulances and decide who actually needs one and who doesn't in terms of priorities. Do you know anything yeah, about that, Ellie? Yeah, look, I, only only so much. Um, there have certainly been some changes to our um, 
dispatch services mm. um, and that's working towards um, I guess yeah yeah leaving leaving space for those priority jobs um, and also bringing in the non-emergency services um, to more cases mm. um, to free up the emergency um, services yeah. more. So, yeah, lots of positive, re- actually lots of really positive changes going Th- on That's there. one thing I have yeah. really quite liked at working in emergencies is seeing patient transfers being performed by non-emergency crews freeing up Ambulance Victoria mm, crews. Yeah. So if you're going from a public emergency department to a private admission um, in a private hospital, yeah. uh, having a non-emergency crew take you there is, um, mm. I think that's a fantastic improvement. Yeah, so there's really a move move towards utilising the non-emerge services more. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so lots of changes with our dispatch mm. um, that I can even notice the positivity in um, in the last few months. Uh, it would be remiss of me and my eight-and-a-half-year-old son is sitting outside mm-hmm. and I know he'll want me to ask this. Um, do you still get a buzz out of the lights and sirens <laughs> and when do you do the lights and sirens? Oh, look... I wish I did. I wish I did. Um, no, it, you know. No buzz? No buzz. No buzz. You know, it's sort of like, oh, oh, oh I'm going to disturb the traffic. Oh, all right, all right. Just um, on that, I what think should it you might do? I might be, dare I say it, a little bit more of a boy thing to... <sighs> oh, it's such a boy thing, fl- but I'm not, not going to apologise for that. Fl- it's exciting. The flashy lights, yeah. yeah. What should you do if you've got a flashing light ambulance behind you and you're on the road? What are you actually meant to do? Well, don't smash on your brakes. <laughs> That's bad. Don't like that. Um, so look around you um, slowly and calmly. Move out of the way. There's that beautiful, calming voice that we have <laughs> come to know and love from all our. I did. I do have a good story about this. I did see a, a car mount the curb and hit a pole <laughs> in their efforts to get out of the way of an ambulance. Oh, once, oh and yeah. I, I did think that was vaguely funny. And one of the things that always also makes me laugh is the um, the people you know uh, the people in the suburbs with their four wheel drives that they never get a chance to really kind of you know take take. <laughs> Take it off road. Take, take off road. You know, first first flash of a light, and they're off. They're up there. Yep, <laughs> on the curb. Yep. Wow, um, Ellie, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for the work that you do, and thank you to all our paramedics. No, we are very here, grateful. Here. Yes, yeah. we are. Well Where done, would paramedics. We be without you? Well, it's a it's a it's a beautiful job, and you know, we most of us feel very fortunate to to be in the position we're in. Um, yeah, so, so thank you for having me. Lucky Cheers. for us, very lucky for us. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to move on from the world of paramedics, though, at the moment and start to talk about the Medicare freeze, Miss Medic. And all I know about the Medicare freeze is that it's happening until 2020. Tell me more. Right. Well, you know, I do think I love this little gig on a Sunday where we get to talk about all things medical and psychological. And I can think that there there are so many things that I'd rather be talking about <laughs> than budgets and rebates. But unfortunately, this one has forced my hand. I, you know, I have to discuss this because it's such a big, a big issue. And uh, 
to re- truly understand the Medicare freeze, I think that it's probably worthwhile just going through a little bit about how Medicare works because I don't think it's necessarily the most easily understandable system. I think it took me a while to get my head around it and I work in that system. So just to summarise, Medicare is a public health system that provides rebates to people when they access a um, eligible medical service like a GP visit. So the rebate is yours, the patients. It's not the doctors. But when you are bulk billed, what happens is your doctor is agreeing to accept the Medicare rebate as the total fee for service in that instance. And when you sign on your way out, you are signing over that rebate to give it on to the GP. If you are privately billed, then the fee is higher, you pay that entire amount and then the Medicare rebate is reimbursed to you. So the rebate is yours. So, for example, if you go and see a GP, it's a standard consultation and the rebate is about 30 bucks or something? $37.05 $37. for a, a okay. standard rebate. So if your GP clinic charges you $50, um, you will get $37.05 back of that. Yep. You pay the GP $50, yep. the rebate is yours. But if you are bulk billed, then that means your GP gets the $37 and nothing more for That's that right. consultation That's and right. therefore you don't pay out of pocket. That's right. So it's the GP choosing to have take less money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the GP is getting substantially less. And so $37.05 is what the rebate sits at for a standard visit with your GP. Now this is estimated to probably only cover about 50% of costs of the consult. Um, so, and what the Medicare freeze is all about, um, so this amount of rebate has been the case since about 2014. In 2013, the first freeze on indexation for Medicare rebate was introduced by the Labor Party at the time. And at that time, the rebate was about $36 something. Um, there was a brief reprieve on the freeze in 2004 and the rebate went up to $37, oh, sorry, 2014 and the rebate went up to $37.05. And then later in 2014, the coalition announced a freeze on rebates that would last until 2018. And in this most recent government budget, that that freeze has been ex- extended to 2020. And so it's worth pointing out, Miss Medic, that, that the actual amounts of the rebates were set way back in the 70s yeah. um, and haven't had much of a review since the 70s. So in actual fact, when you think, even though there's been indexation, it's inflation indexation over the time, the amounts have never been looked at again to see how much does it actually cost to provide a service since since the 70s. Mm-hmm. That's right. So what we're seeing is the ra- the cost for everything, as we know, is increasing. So the cost for providing a, a business such as general practice, obviously all the costs are increasing, but for such a long period of time, this rebate has stayed exactly the same. So what does that mean? Well, it means that it's going to be increasingly difficult and potentially even impossible for GPs to be able to afford to bulk bill their patients. Right. And that is, and that's something that's massive. So that means that we essentially could be moving away from our universal access to healthcare. Um, 
Just to, I mean, I imagine some people are thinking, oh, GPs earn enough money as it is and why do they need more money? What's wrong with the Medicare freeze? Can you talk about what some of those costs are, you know, that other than just the GP sitting in the room, you know, providing yeah. a consultation to you? What are all the other costs associated with Well, I mean, I think, well, there's the building costs, so there's rent for the building, there's all the equipment that's in the building, there's all of our software uh that we need to pay for those computers there's nursing staff there's reception staff there's insurance then on the individual gp membership fees to colleges um, medical indemnity insurance this you know this all can is hundreds and thousands like it's so much money and then it, we are getting this 37 dollars and five cents per consult so it's just simply it's and that's all the stuff that's going up you know over oh, the years, that, that's all been knows. increasing yeah. And but but the rebate hasn't gone up. And even more confusing and more complex and difficult for you guys is that um, patients are getting more complex. So as people live longer there and chronic illness becomes the norm, then yeah. that those types of consultations become even more complex, and the need to spend more time with patients increases as well. So that's the other thing. So the result of this freeze could be that there'll be more pressure just to churn through patients. Six-minute consults will be standard because you'll just need to see so many more patients to just even cover costs. And what I feel, what really gets to me is that this shows just a real blatant disregard for the hard work that GPs do. Um, we saved the government in terms of the public health dollar hundreds of thousands of dollars per year by keeping people out of hospitals, by eliminating these attendances to emergency departments that, you know, the standard ED visit I think is about $560 just to, for a patient to be seen in, in a, an emergency That's department. Costs. That's what it costs the public health dollar. So, um, you know, GPs saving so much money. We seem to be the easy target in this. When it's been looked at, General practice is one of the most cost-effective areas of the public health. We we see 85% of the population annually, yet our costs only account for a third of the public health budget. Yet we seem to be constantly where the ones that it seems to just be reliant on our goodwill and it can only go so far. It will simply be that it will be extremely difficult for for GPs to be able to bulk bill. So what does that mean for the rest of us who are seeing GPs? So sounds like, you know, you can't keep doing what you're doing for the same cost, so we're going to be out of pocket. Is that right? Well, that's right, and that's why this has been called a co-payment by stealth. The government are, no, are not increasing the cost to the patient, but they are forcing GPs to increase the cost to the patient. So the patient will be paying more. There's there's no other way around it. Um and so you know, while for, say, you or I, it wouldn't be a terribly big deal to pay $14 or something like that extra to see a GP, um, and I work in a mixed billing practice where we do privately bill, but we bulk bill all children, healthcare card holders and pensioners, it's, we, they're the people that are going to suffer. So parents of young children that are seeing GPs frequently, people with a, uh, chronic health problems and, you know, may not be working, healthcare card holders. Uh, what is this going to mean for their health? Well, we know that they will be more reluctant to attend frequently and do those checks that keep them out of hospital, that keep them healthy and functional. We know that this is going to increase the demand on emergency services 
services, which is already burdened, as we've already alluded to. Um, and we're just going to see a rise. What about preventative health? Who's going to spend the money to go and do these checks that keep people healthy in the long term. You can't help but thinking back to what we were just talking about in terms of paramedics and the ambulance system and we've been talking about ambulances and paramedics going out to people who perhaps don't need that emergency service uh, and the way to prevent that is people seeing their GP and having a good relationship and, and checking in regularly with their GP um, and, and as you say this is going to change that isn't it and make people so much more reluctant. Yeah look it's the the health of society is reliant on very good primary health care and if we're just continuing to disregard the job that primary health care does then we're going to see the uh, we're going to see a huge change in the health of our country now it's important to know that think about this when it comes to making your decisions about voting but it's uh, we also just need to continue the pressure on. We can't just rely on the vote because the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, has said that he opposes the continued freeze, but he's fail- he will not commit to lifting the freeze should they be elected. So you will be seeing that the RACGP, which is the Royal and Australian College of General Practitioners and the AMA, um, are going to be coming out hard uh, and dis- coming up against this over the over the coming months so you'll be seeing some information about it and speak to your local member see where they stand on this issue so as well as fighting the cuts to digital radio we have to be fighting the medicare freeze as well absolutely fighting against it um what about i have in mind these bulk billing gp clinics you know we all know they exist it's where people tend to go if they just need a sick certificate maybe for work um how do they function and is that going to be what happens that people stop having a regular gp and they go to these sort of bulk billing are, are there always going to be some people who bulk bill and how do they do well, you, well, the, the, how they do it is they churn through lots of patients. So it is. I, I feel like it is not the equitable. Uh, it's not the same level of care as you get in um, other GP clinics. That's a that is a generalisation. I'm sure there are some very good GPs working very hard in these bulk billing clinics, but they are under pressure because these are these are businesses, and often you'll find these the bulk billing clinics are not. Um, GP run and owned like other practices such as the one I work in run and owned by GPs working in the clinic. They're run by businesses that need to make money and if you are if we're only getting $37.05 per per patient then the pressure is on to see more patients mm. so they'll be the pressure will be on to see you know eight ten patients an hour mm. which we know is not possible to manage as particularly those chronic patients or complex patients and what about we were talking in the green room about this locum service that's around um at the moment where doctors come to your house and it's all bulk billing how does that fit with all of yeah, this look there's always been locum services available but what's happening of late is this increasing marketing and advertising of some more specific after hours doctor services that are businesses that are set up that are potentially um, taking advantage of the Medicare system. So what we're hearing about is reports of um, 
basically if you are called out after hours, you have access to a Medicare item number that is beyond this $37.05 item number. It's an urgent out-of-hours home visit item number, which is in the order of about $150, $160. So that doctor can get that amount of money from the Medicare system for that consult. And we're seeing, because they are offering this service of bulk billing, it's becoming quite attractive for people to be waiting till 8 o'clock instead of seeing their, their GP in hours, um, waiting till 8 o'clock, getting, having a GP come to the home for non-urgent things and uh, urgent item numbers being put, in, put through to Medicare, such as, you know, a repeat prescription of the oral contraceptive pill. Now, that's not an urgent consult, but it is... Why wouldn't you get a GP to come to your house and, and you get bulk billed rather than going out somewhere? But people aren't realising that that's then... But charging the Medicare system $150. Yeah, and this, so the money's back, coming from somewhere The money's still. coming from somewhere and there's only so much that can be spent. So we have to think about respon- re- being responsible in the way we use the Medicare dollar. And we also have to think about really clamping down on these people that are really rotting the system a little bit. Um, the other thing about the after-hours medical services is that these are not GPs. They're not fellows of the College of General Practitioners. In most cases, they are either doctors in training, so they've finished their medical school training and two years out of medical school, um, overseas trained doctors. So you're not necessarily getting the same quality of care as you would by your mm. your GP who is a fellow of the College of General Practitioners mm. and therefore has to be up to date with current practice. Lolly Doc, you've got 15 seconds. Oh, that's, I can do it in 15. One of the smartest people I work with says that you can have a, a health service that is cheap, that provides quality care and provides time to their patients. You can have two out of the three, but you can't have all three. And I think we're giving up one for the others. Yeah, good note to end on. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. We've been Radiotherapy. We'll be back again next week at 10am. But right now we've got to hand over the studio to those lovely scientists who are going to bring you an hour of fascinating stuff. So don't go anywhere. And we'll see you again next week. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. Rrr.